0: Brothers and sisters, I would ask that you turn in your Bibles with me to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 7 and verses 9 to 17. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. Please then hear with me the reading of God's inspired Word. Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. In this interlude that we are reading about in chapter 7, and it's an interlude as it's being inserted between the 6th the and the 7th seal, what we see is the church from two perspectives. Right? That is what we see in chapter 7. The, the church from two perspectives. Last week in verses 1-8, to eight, John has shown a glimpse of the church militant. right? The 144,000 which consisted of the spiritual seed of Abraham, both Jew and Gentile alike who make up the true Israel of God. Right? These are believers who were on earth who he said needed to be sealed by the Holy Spirit so that they would not be spiritually harmed as the angels allowed the, the four winds of the earth, which are the four riders and their horses, to wreak havoc upon the earth when the first four seals were opened. And like an earthly seal that protects what is inside, so too does this seal that believers are sealed with. The Holy Spirit is given to the believer to protect us spiritually under the the, the trials and the temptations that come our way so that we might endure. The Holy Spirit is a, a seal upon the believer so that they might hold fast to the faith until the end no matter the cost. We've seen that last week. But likewise, like an earthly seal, which also authenticates that letter or that box as, as genuine, as being belonging to someone, so too does the, the seal that the believer is given. Right? So too does the Holy Spirit do this to the believer. It authenticates us right? as, as, as genuine believers. Right? It testifies to us of the, the genuine nature of our faith as the Holy Spirit is that guarantee of our inheritance, isn't it? That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Right? It testifies to us that we are children of God and heirs of eternal glory with Christ. And so then that endurance that, that the saints Show that perseverance through the grace of God and in the, in, and because of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, it, it proves, it gives evidence to all and to ourselves that we truly belong to God. Now with the picture that John is given in our text today, no longer is John seeing the church militant. Now that picture of the church militant was a marvelous picture though, wasn't it? As it provided encouragement to the saints. Showing to them that all who belong to Christ would not be lost. That is what last week's picture showed to us. But in the picture, in the vision that John sees today, what he sees no longer is the church militant, but instead he sees the church triumphant. That is what he sees in our text today. And this picture too provides encouragement and comfort to the saints, but for a totally different reason, doesn't it? It provides encouragement to the church because it shows to the church that they will not live in tribulation forever right that's what this picture shows to us today right for those struggling in the first century right battling uh, uh daily sin for those who are who are struggling with their their neighbors and their coworkers who are trying to entice them with idolatry and sexual immorality for those who are struggling in the church to maintain purity and and to cast out all false doctrine. The picture that John shows today demonstrated to them then why they ought to continue fighting the good fight of faith all the way to the end through every trial and tribulation. And that is because this picture that we seen last week in verses 1-8 to was a temporary picture of who the church will be only for a short time. Only for a temporary time. Only until all the elect are gathered. But what they see now in this vision is who the church is made to be. Who we will all be one day, not temporally, but eternally in heaven with our Lord. So that what it ought to do then is make those present woes that the church was dealing with really no woes at all. But rather, those woes ought to be blessings in disguise as we see that they were preparing the saints for glory. And so today, we're going to see what we are being prepared for. We will, we will see in our text today the glories that await the church militant. In our text today, we will see what the church triumphant will do in glory, who we will be in glory, what we will experience in glory. We will see all of those things in our text this morning. And so, brothers and sisters, let us turn our attention then to the the picture of the multitude. And so our first point this morning as we look at the, the great multitude will be this. The composition of the multitude. Point number one. The composition of the multitude. Now John records that what he sees after this last vision is another vision. As he says, After this I looked and behold, A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Now here's the first thing I want us to notice. That this group of people, this great multitude, is the same people from Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. It's the same people. There in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, who were they? It was the redeemed church. It It was all of the elect. Who were represented by the, the 24 elders who had harps and who had the golden bowls of incense who were singing to the Lord, praising Him for, for ransoming a people for God made up of what? Every tribe, language, people, and nation. That's the same phraseology that we see here in our text today in verse 9 of chapter 7. What we likewise see in both 5-9 and 7-9 is that these things are taking place in the exact same place. Right, They are taking place around where? The throne of God, which is the centerpiece of the heavenly world. And so we see that these are the same peoples coming out from different tribes and nations and languages who are now in heaven, around the throne, worshiping God. And the people in this vision are called a great multitude which no one could number. What ought to that... What ought that elicit in our minds as soon as we hear that? What certainly it elicited in the minds of these first century hearers. How about the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis? Doesn't that cause us to, to, to remember that promise in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3? Where God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him that dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? This is what we see, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, or the Abrahamic promise, in the great multitude in heaven. We see the fulfillment of that promise here. Now these multitudes are also to be identified then with the 144,000 of last week on earth as, as it is they who have become heirs of that promise through faith in Christ. This is what Paul says. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's, heirs according to the promise. And so what we need to see is that the people, this great multitude, consists of the hundred, people out of that 144,000 who end up dying confessing Christ. And in this vision, what else then do we see of this, of this group of people, of this great multitude? Well, what we also see is a great diversity, don't we? We see a great diversity amongst God's people. right? No longer is there just a, a prized nation, is there? But no, instead there is a prized people from every corner of the earth. In heaven, unlike on earth, what you will find is complete and total unity amongst the people of God. A unity of people from amongst different languages and cultures and ethnicities. Right? While on earth, it may be hard for us for a multitude of reasons right, to, to get around those barriers even as believers here on earth amongst one another. But while in heaven, every barrier we must see will be removed. Right? Every barrier will be removed. In heaven, we will truly and most fully experience what it is to be one in Christ. That is what we will experience. Because in heaven, the multitude is going to be perfectly of one mind. Although we will be a diverse group of people, in the sense that we will be saved out of different portions or parts of this land, we will not be diverse in our thoughts. We will not be diverse in our belief. We will not be diverse in our creed. And we will all be preeminently concerned with glorifying God for the same reason. For our shared salvation as we all will be citizens of our heavenly abode. In heaven, we will be focusing on what brings us together. The multitude will be worshipping God for that. Not what brings us apart or what makes us different, but rather, what brings us together, which is our salvation and our redemption in Christ. Which is why we see it causes them to cry out in unison in verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right? That is what they are all concerned about. That is what they are all caught up thinking about. Right? Salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb. And it's what the great multitude composed of Jew and Gentile alike are doing which also ought to further solidify that understanding or that reality that all of the redeemed compose or comprise the true Israel of God. Because what is it that we see them doing in this picture? Well, this is a picture of the redeemed celebrating the eschatological feast of tabernacles. That's what we see going on here. As we see, what are they doing? They are holding these palm branches in their hands as they are praising God. In Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 34, there God institutes uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And it is in that feast that Israel is commanded uh, to, to, to celebrate or to worship God Number one, because of all the harvests that they have ingathered. But then secondly, they were to worship and praise and celebrate God, remembering how He brought them out of Egypt and how He caused them to to live and dwell in tents in the wilderness over the course of those 40 years. But what were they to do in that celebration? It's here in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, they are told this, And you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And so Israel in the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the completion of their exodus brought about by God. Now, brothers and sisters, let me ask you for a second here. How is it that the church is is many times described throughout the New Testament. Right? How does Peter describe the church in 1st Peter? Well, he describes us as elect exiles. He describes us as sojourners, right? Because we are in a land that is not our own because our citizenship is not here but in heaven. See, what we need to see throughout the New Testament is that scripture pictures the church likewise on an exodus. Right, We are on a, a new exodus. And when that new exodus is brought to completion, we will be brought to our heavenly abode with Christ. So just as Israel was to celebrate their exodus out of captivity and into the land of Canaan, so too what we see here is a picture of of spiritual Israel, of true Israel in heaven now, celebrating the the new exodus. Not to an earthly temporal canaan as israel celebrated but rather we are celebrating what canaan pointed to right which was our heavenly inheritance right and so now it is the saints in heaven with their palm trees who are celebrating right that the new exodus and as god has brought them out of the old land as they are no longer than sojourners and exiles but now they are living in their home which is heaven and so we see that they celebrate salvation, which also includes deliverance. right? Not just as Israel celebrated deliverance from Egyptian captivity, but now the saints in heaven celebrate deliverance from what? From sin. From this world. From the devil. right? Freedom from all of those things that has been brought about through the new exodus. Israel also worshiped God because of the ingathered harvest, we said, in the Feast of Booths. What do we see in the vision of this multitude? What we see is the redeemed ingathered in heaven, don't we? It's a picture of the full harvest of the saints that have been gathered before the throne in heaven. And isn't this harvest language of the church biblical language? Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. He says, "...the harvest is plentiful." But laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why we need to see the great importance of the Gospel here on earth. Right? This is the reason that Christ is yet to come. Because He has not fully brought in the harvest yet. Right? There is still work to be done in the fields. Which is why we ought to be supporting Right, The spread of the Gospel. Which is why each one of us ought to be witnesses for Christ in our homes and amongst our family and friends and co-workers. Why? Because they might be among the, the fruit or the produce that is yet to come into the harvest. And so we need to see the great importance of the Gospel this day. Right, That is the means by which He brings the harvest in. See that those in heaven then will rejoice who rejoice will only be those who experience salvation here on earth but i also want us to keep in mind this because i know all of us here who are believers desperately want others right our family members our friends sons daughters mothers fathers to be saved don't we but let this picture also reveal to us or show to us and demonstrate to us that at the end of the day salvation belongs to the lord right that is what the saints cry out Right, The saving work is God's work. This is what the saints cry out. Salvation belongs to the Lord. All of salvation from beginning to end is His. And He deserves the praise for it. Oftentimes, amillennialists are considered pessimists. I want us to see though in this text, we're not pessimistic at, at all. Look at the success also that the Gospel is going to have. That the salvation is going to have. What is the what is the number of the saints in heaven? After I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Do you, you see the success of the Gospel, brothers and sisters? There isn't going to be a small number in heaven, but rather, there will be an innumerable number in heaven. Right? That is the success that the Gospel is going to have over all of the earth. And so I say to us all here, have Patience. Right, have patience, knowing that our methods, our innovations, right, whatever we can contrive up in our minds, is not going to bring anyone into the kingdom. Right? It is God's methods that will do that. And so we need to stick with God's methods and His alone. Right? Knowing that all will be brought who He has called. Because God is the one who will do the bringing. And so we are to, to, to rest in that, to trust in that. As I was studying for this uh, the sermon today, I was reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon on this same text. And as I was reading the sermon, I had to chuckle. Uh, because one thing that, that, that Spurgeon points out here is, as the saints declare that salvation belongs to the Lord in heaven, is something our Arminian friends might not like to hear. And what Calvin says is that all the saints in heaven will be Calvinists. All the saints in heaven we see here are declaring what? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? It's in heaven that they're going to realize that they had nothing to do with their salvation. It was all a work of grace. It was all a work of God. It was all because of the atoning work of Christ that you've been brought into the kingdom. And it is also what they will see that He died not for all people, but for a specific people. A numbered people who now are redeemed, those He purchased out of every tribe and nation and tongue and people. And so we see, brothers and sisters today, the the composition of the multitude. This leads us then to our second point this morning, which is the garments of the multitude. The garments of the multitude. Please look with me at verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, I want us to see this. That the multitude is not there because they have been raptured up to heaven. But they are there because they have gone through the tribulation and have died going through the tribulation. Oftentimes, what we will see is that this, this phrase, the great tribulation, is used to speak about only something that is far off in the distant future right? that will immediately precede the, the coming of Christ. But what I want us to see is that that is not the case. Right? That is not the case. Now the origin of the phrase, the Great Tribulation, probably is derived from Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. In Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, we read this. It describes a time of trouble, he says, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. That, that is what Daniel here is describing. That is later than what Jesus will, will call great tribulation in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21 when He says to the disciples, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Now, the interesting part, since Daniel really lays in the background of our text this morning, is that what Daniel describes occurring It is tribulation because God's people have remained faithful to God and so they have been persecuted because of their faithfulness. And isn't that exactly what we see going on in the book of Revelation? In chapters 2 and 3. That God's people are being persecuted for their faith. I mean, three of the seven churches are literally on the cusp of falling away from the faith. Why? Why? Because they don't want to be persecuted, because they don't want to go through the tribulation. And so they're willing to compromise their faith to escape it. And so we need to see that tribulation ultimately consists in being pressured to compromise your faith. And if we think about tribulation, what is tribulation? It is being pressured to compromise one's faith. This is why the church then in Smyrna is commended by Christ, because he's seen that pressure that was, that was being produced upon them, right, to compromise, and he's seen the response. And so he said to them in Revelation chapter 2 verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, right? They were dealing with great tribulation. And yet, all the while, they were remaining faithful to Christ through it all. And so what I want us to see, brothers and sisters, is that the greatness of the tribulation should not be seen with respect to when it occurs, but rather the greatness of the tribulation is to be seen by which, by the intensity by which it occurs. And so, the greater the intensity, the greater the oppression, the greater the tribulation. That is what we are to see. And so we are not to see that tribulation, this great tribulation, only has respect to some time in the distant future. But rather, it's describing events that already had begun in the first century and will continue to exist until the return of Christ. The the tribulation already began in John's day. That's how John himself sees it. In John chapter 1, verse 9, what does he say? He writes to the saints saying, I am a partner in the tribulation. Right? John himself sees himself a part of the tribulation, which has already begun in his own day. Right? And so what we need to see is that John sees prophecies, end time prophecies, as already beginning. Already having a beginning fulfillment in his own day. And we know this because this is how he treats other prophecies as well. In Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, we read this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting contempt. Now the question is, how are we to understand those words? Well, in the Gospel of John, John actually records Jesus' interpretation of these words. In John chapter 5 verses 24 and 25, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do you see that? The resurrection that is described by Daniel in chapter 12 verse 2 is already seen by Jesus and John as already occurring during the ministry of Christ. It is already occurring during the ministry of Christ. And so likewise, brothers and sisters, what we need to see is the end time tribulation being described likewise already occurring and having begun in the first century with these saints. And it's those saints who endure this tribulation, we are told, who then are clothed with these white robes. It's the, it's the church militant whose, whose garments are, are dirty and battered because of the spiritual battle and war that they've endured who now are clothed in these white robes. It is they who persevere to the end Who are draped in the glorious garments of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the question is, why? Right? Why are they clothed in these white robes? Is it something that they did? Did they merit these white robes? Was it because of their faithfulness that they are made to wear these white robes? No. No. We need to see that all who wear these robes have been given the right to wear them by Christ because what Christ has done on their behalf. That is the reason they wear white robes. Also, I want you to understand this, brothers and sisters. Right? Your garments will only be white. All of the redeemed's garments will only be white Because Christ came and Christ wore red garments. That is why you can wear white garments. Because He wore red garments. This is what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 12. Speaking of Jesus Christ, He entered once for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of His own blood. Thus securing eternal redemption. Right? What does John say in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7? That it is by the blood of Christ that you have been cleansed from all sin. And so we need to see it is by the blood of Christ that He purchased glory for you and I. It is through the blood of Christ that you have triumphed over your every enemy. It is through the shedding of Christ's blood and by His stripes, That each of you today who believes has been healed. So that now, His victory becomes our victory. And He clothes us now in the victor's garments. And brothers and sisters, how badly we needed the victor's garments, didn't we? Because we all come into this world with filthy, dirty, mangled garments. Right? We we come with garments that have such a stench in them that cannot be removed by anything that you and I do. Our garments are not white by nature, which is why we are called out to all the world to by faith look to Christ, right to to come to him with empty hands, receiving what only he could have earned, and for those drawn to Christ by God, by His grace and through His almighty power, you are given then the color of victory in these garments. As white is is the color of victory, you are clothed in the color of victory. Christ removes that stench as He gives to you His own righteousness, which is an illustrious aroma before Almighty God. This is what we will all be clothed in, brothers and sisters. We will all be draped in the purity of Christ, which the white robes likewise symbolize. We will all be without fault in heaven. We will all be without sin in heaven, having been washed and covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, thus made able to stand before His throne in righteousness. But see that it will only come through tribulation. You cannot escape tribulation. Christ passed unto glory through tribulation. And so too will all who seek to follow after Him. You will only pass to glory through tribulation. And right now, we all face great tribulation, don't we? We all face great tribulation. Right now, Satan uses this world, doesn't he, to attack us daily. Daily. Right? Daily, He uses unbelievers all around us to pollute our ears with their blasphemies. Right? He uses His world around us to show us and to entice us with idolatry and immorality every day of our lives. Tempting us to, to be drawn away from Christ and to be tempted to uh, flee Christ for the, the, the fascinations of this ungodly world. It is these things, brothers and sisters, that have ravaged the church, have they not? It is these things that have destroyed Christian households, have they not? It is these things, brothers and sisters, that have brought great shame and reproach upon Christ and His name. And so I ask you, what can be worse? What can be a greater tribulation that we endure than this? No earthly catastrophe, brothers and sisters, can compare. Right? What is worse? Think about it. What is worse for the saint than the daily battle over your soul as Satan looks to destroy it? What is a greater tribulation than that? And yet, brothers and sisters, what I also wanted us to see on the other end, though, is how good tribulations are. How good tribulations are. And you ask, well, why are tribulations good? Because tribulations cause each and every one of us to remember how desperately we need Christ. That is what tribulations do. This is what we sing about in that great hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. In the second stanza of that hymn, this is what we sing, I Need Thee Every Hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need Thee. Oh, I need Thee. Every hour I need Thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. Brothers and sisters, let our trials, let our tribulations not be a time to despair, but rather let it be a time in which we call out to the Lord that He might awaken us to see how desperately we need Christ every day. Let our tribulations cause us to see how desperately we need the blood of Christ, how desperately we need the righteousness of Christ every hour and every second of every day of our lives. And this is ultimately the hope of every saint, isn't it? This is the hope of every saint that in fact, we will one day be in the immediate presence of our Lord and we will be freed from every trial and every tribulation. And this leads us then to our third and our final point this morning, which is the experiences of the multitude. The experiences of the multitude. Please look with me at verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What do we see here? What do we see going on in the midst of the multitude? I think one of the first things I think that is glaringly obvious to us is that we see the safety of the multitude, don't we? We see the safety of the multitude here. This is a comfort to the church now. That although right now we fight, brothers and sisters, in heaven we will rest securely and safely in the presence of the Lord. That is what we have to look forward to. Part of these verses in 16 and 17 is a quotation, actually from Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 10, which describes the restoration of Israel, which is, applied to the church here. And it's there in 49, verse 10, that we read this. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Do you see, brothers and sisters, this will be the experience of the saints in heaven. We will hunger and we will thirst no more. Why not? Because Christ our Savior will satisfy the every longing of our soul in heaven. Right? In heaven we will dwell in utter security under the shepherding arms of our Savior. Right? That too we see in in this text, don't we? We We hear the echoes of Psalm 23, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That is what He will do in heaven. In part, though, we have this now, don't we? In part, we have this now. What does Jesus say? Whoever believes in Me has everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, you are in possession of everlasting life now. Everlasting life is already yours. Now, Christ is with us, but how? By His Spirit. Now, on earth, Christ is shepherding us, but how? Through earthly shepherds. But this is what we have to look forward to in heaven, that we will no longer be shepherded by earthly shepherds, by earthly men, but rather, we will be shepherded by the Good Shepherd Himself, Jesus Christ. Right now, in this life, we know what it's like to be thirsty, don't we? We know what it's like to be parched. I woke up this morning needing to go grab a, a bottle of water because I was thirsty. Brothers and sisters in heaven, you will never go thirsty again. You will never go thirsty again. You will have your every need and your every want supplied. Do you hear that? Your every need and your every want. Why can I say that? Well, Because your wants will not be undefiled. Your wants will not be ungodly anymore. Right? You will not want for earthly goods and earthly pleasures. What you will want is for God and God alone. Here on earth, brothers and sisters, we are constantly experiencing tribulation. Right? Never having a free second. But this is why we are to look forward to heaven. Because in heaven, we no longer will do battle with the flesh but we will have freedom from sin forevermore. These springs we drink of in part now. This is that water that Jesus was offering to the Samaritan woman at the well. But brothers and sisters, remember this, that it's in heaven that we will have this in all of its fullness that each and every one of us will be filled up to the capacity that we are able to hold what we also see then is this that in heaven we will be using ourselves and our instruments only for righteousness' sake. Right? Right now here on earth we oftentimes use our minds and our bodies for sin, don't we? Right? We profane them. But in heaven we will only use them for which they for which God has given them to us for which is what? To glorify him. We will glorify Him forevermore in heart, in mind, in body, in soul, in thought, in word, in deed. That is what we see here in verses 11 and 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne. And all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God forever and ever. Amen. This is the occupation of the saints in heaven. This is what we will be consumed with in glory. Worshipping God and worshiping the Lamb who sits on the throne. That is what we see, don't we, in our text? In verse 15, they serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne shelters them by His presence. Brothers and sisters, these Joys that they experience, these joys that they taste in heaven will be the joys that we all experience and taste as well. Right? This is the destination of all of God's people. And so I ask, brothers and sisters, does that excite you? When you read this, does that excite you? When you are going through struggle and conflict and tribulation here on earth, does this comfort you? It ought to. And there, like the angels, we too will adore God forever and ever. What are they doing here? They they ascribe to God this sevenfold description in verse twelve. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to God forever and ever. That's not by chance, is it? The number seven again being used. As he is perfect. They are glorifying the perfections of His attributes, which also ought to be a what? It ought to be an example to us of how we ought to be worshipping God here on earth. right? This ought to put into perspective the Lord's Day and what it is and how important it is for us to be numbered amongst the visible church and to be here on the Lord's Day with the corporate body praising God. For He alone is worthy for who He is and what He has done in His Son Jesus Christ for all who believes. Brothers and sisters, I want us to see that this is our reward. This is what enduring to the end results in. This is what Christ has won for you. It is a picture of eternal peace with God. We see the joy that the victors taste In the new Jerusalem, we see that salvation is at the center of all of our praises. We also see that it's on the basis of what Christ did. That the great multitude experienced these blessings. And no greater blessing is this than being in the immediate presence of Christ forever. No greater blessing than that. Is that what you long for then? To be fed by the Lamb. To be filled by the Lamb. To worship the Lamb. To follow the Lamb wheresoever He may go. I pray that that is our desire, brothers and sisters. Knowing that trials that we experience here today will not last forever. The church will come out of them. And so for now, brothers and sisters, I want us to think about who God made us to be by His grace. And rejoice in that today. But also, remember, especially in the midst of trials, who He will make us to be in glory. For right now, we all belong to the church militant. But soon, everyone here who believes will have their portion and have their share in the church triumphant. Please, let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, We are so thankful for Your words of of comfort and grace. We are thankful, Father, that You provide encouragement to the, the church militant, that we know that tribulation will not last forever, and that You have something far greater for us in glory. We ask, Lord, that You would help to point our eyes to that glorious heavenly estate that awaits all who believe. We pray, Lord, that You would use this to comfort us in the midst of our trials today and every day. And that, Lord, You would cause us to long for glory so that we might be in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, forevermore. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.